Hey everyone, welcome. My name is Ben. I'm so glad you're joining us wherever you may be joining us from. Super glad you're with us. I want to ask you a question to begin. What are you known for? Maybe there's a lot of things that you're known for, but I mean, like, what's the big thing? What are you known for? I mean, some people are just absolutely known for certain things, right? I'll show you a couple of pictures here, and you tell me what they're known for. What's the first thing that comes in your mind when I show you a picture here of Colonel Sanders, right? Well, everybody knows right away. He's known for chicken, right? Finger-licking good chicken and some very weird commercials, right? Or how about uh, if I show you a picture of, of Babe Ruth or Hank Aaron? Yeah, everybody's like, there's a lot to those guys, but I mean, the thing they're known for is baseball, home runs, right? And maybe a candy bar, right? Or, or how about I, I show you a picture of Chadwick Boseman, right? Recently passed away, so much in the news and in the hearts of everyone recently, and people might say, well, he's best known for his role in the Black Panther and, and you know, the, the, the Wakanda salute, right? Or how about this one? Mr. Rogers, right? Mr. Rogers, known for, you know, maybe cardigan sweaters or it's a wonderful day in the neighborhood. You know, he's known for those things. What if I put your picture up and I showed it to the people who know you and love you, work with you, live with you? What are you known for? Or what if we, what if we asked the world, what are Christians known for? You know, what? What's the church really known for? That's a really important question. It turns out that um, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons actually did a massive survey about that very, very question. And they asked kind of a new generation what they really think about Christianity. And what they found, disappointingly so, is that about two-thirds of non-Christians that were surveyed said they perceived Christians as too enamored, caught up, and, and bound up with pushy political perspectives. And an even higher percentage said they were turned off by the way that Christians engage around the subject of politics. Seems like for about 65% of people who don't know Jesus are turned off to Jesus, not because they're rejecting the Messiah or his message, but his messengers and the way specifically that we engage with politics. So that seems important. It turns out that, that Jesus says, if you're a follower of mine, if you're serious about that, there's going to be something very specific that you are going to be known by. We're going to talk about that in just a little minute. And it's going to be a really challenging message, I think, for me and for you and for all of us. I think this whole series has been challenging. Today's our last installment of this thing called separation of church and hate. And I know some of you have found it very challenging in a positive way. You've been very encouraged and like, man, I love it. We need this. It's so important. I know some of you probably feel pretty much the opposite. Like, you know, this has been frustrating or I don't know, agree with all this or you've been even maybe a little angry about it. Here's what I'm just asking everyone to do is to just really set your opinions aside long enough to check your spirit against the Spirit of God. And if there's truth in anything we're saying, if it really is something that looks like Jesus and what God's calling us to do, that you'd be open to that. That's all. That seems reasonable, doesn't it? Because this stuff that we're talking about really, really matters, and it's way more than a sermon series for us, you guys. 
This is about who Jesus is. This is about, this is us and our witness and our very mission in the world. So when we talk about the separation of church and hate, it's about our whole Christian life and it's about, it's about getting a handle on these postures and practices. Let's review them quickly and we'll land on the last one today, okay? The first thing we're going to remember to do if we're serious about following Jesus is to remember our identity. Like, don't forget who you are. Your identity as a follower of Jesus Christ needs to drive everything else you are and do, including your politics. Don't forget that. And then we behave with civility because we've got to learn how to play well with others in the public sandbox. We just do. One reason is because if we can't learn to disagree without being so disagreeable and hateful, no one will ever hear us with the message we have to bring. And then we're going to demonstrate humility because it just doesn't work. And it's not like Jesus at all to pretend that we're the smartest and most righteous people around and have a corner on insight and knowledge that nobody else seems to possess on all things. It's just... We've got to have the kind of conviction that will also be measured with compassion so we look a little more humble like the one we say we follow. And then strive for unity because Jesus prayed for it. The Bible tells us to, to really strive for it and because the world is so divided and they need the gift that Christians can bring, not when we're gathered together around politics or divided around politics, but when we're brought together around Jesus. And we're going to all be together with Jesus one day. So in the meantime, number five is we've got to learn to be known for charity, to be known for for charity. We're going to talk about that today. And that, that word charity, we need to talk about a little bit. It's just, uh, it's kind of an archaic word. I don't know that people really use it a lot anymore. In fact, when we use the word today, it kind of has changed meanings from what it meant in the Bible and what we mean by it today. I mean, charity today is kind of like um, a, a nonprofit. Somebody makes a donation to charity, like, say, you know, maybe you or you do something good. If you're involved in charity work, you work at a food pantry or something like this. Or, or it may even mean something a little negative, like when someone resists you doing them a favor, they might say, I don't need your charity, or I'm not a charity project. You know, so when the Bible, when we're talking about being known for charity, if we're talking about something very, very different. The, the word charity is simply a translation of a word in the Bible's original language. It's a very rich, deep, powerful word that has a very clear meaning. And the word in Greek is agape. And in English, in the old English anyway, it would be translated charity. Today, we would just use the word love. It's love. Of course, the problem is we say love about a lot of things, right? We say, you know, man, I just love this weather, you know? Or, or he took one look at her and saw how beautiful she was, and it was love at first sight. Or, or uh, this barbecue sauce is awesome. I love it. See, we use, we use love in all this ways. But agape love, true sort of charity that we're talking about. Love has a definition that's very clear. It's, it means unselfish, unconditional love in action. That's what agape is. That's what charity means. Unselfish, unconditional love in action. That's really it. Unselfish because it's, it's not about you. It's, it's about the other. It makes it very unusual. And that's how Jesus gave his life away for us, isn't it? Unselfish. And then unconditional, because there are no strings attached. It's the kind of love 
that, that doesn't say, I will love you if, if you do what I want. I, w- I will love you if you measure up to my standards. I will love you if you don't disappoint me, if I find you attractive, if I continue to have feelings for you. That's the way the world does love, and it doesn't work, and it leaves marriages in shambles and families destroyed and kids growing up without self-esteem, and, and, and it's, it's a mess. And it, and it makes Christians sort of despise each other across the political aisle. That kind of love that's conditional doesn't work, but agape, charity, God's kind of love has no strings attached because it's a decision. It's an act of your will. It's, in fact, a commitment that doesn't waver. It's unconditional. It's not led by fickle feelings. It's the way Jesus loves us, not because we're so lovely and cute all the time, but it was unconditional. Nothing you can do will make Jesus love you more. Nothing you can do would make Jesus ever love you less. It's a very unusual kind of love, this charity we're talking about. It's unselfish, it's unconditional, and it's love in action. Because love's not just words, not this idea in your head that you have or a sentiment towards someone or thoughts and prayers or feelings at all. As Bob Goff says, love does. Love does. It's a verb. It's an action. It does stuff. When you see a guy in the ditch, you can walk by on the other side with any kind of excuse you want, but it's the one who stops and says, I'm going to be a neighbor because that guy is my neighbor, and I'm going to show love. That's the one who puts love in action that's really loving at all. So we're talking about this biblical idea of love. It's this agape love, this charity like this. And it's not an invisible feeling inside. It's not to be confused with the romantic feelings you might have or a fantasy that way or seeing a pile of puppies and going, oh, they're so cute. I just love them. That's all good. That's all well and good. But it's, it's just different. We're talking about unselfish, unconditional love in action. And the clearest and most powerful, beautiful example of this is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's God demonstrating in Jesus how he came unselfishly and unconditionally, loved us while we were still sinners and proved it by going to the cross. He didn't go to the cross because he wanted to. He didn't want to. He didn't go to the cross and love love us and love everyone because it felt good. It didn't. He didn't do it because it was natural. It wasn't natural. He, He did all those things because it's what love required. And a real follower of Jesus is someone who actually follows him in that way. And that means sometimes we're going to have to love in ways that don't feel good and in ways we don't want to. and that aren't natural, and that the only way we'll ever do it is is if we find some supernatural love. And the Bible says that God is love, and when his love comes to us, it won't stay in us. It'll bubble over and spill and gush out on people. So God's love comes to us and then flows through us. And that's what Jesus says is most important about us. So here's, here's the problem. Here's what's breaking my heart today as we wrap this series up and I believe it breaks the heart of God, and I hope it breaks your heart too. You know, 2020 has been a year like any, unlike any other year, okay, right? We all know this. We'll be looking back on this for the rest of our lives. I think, I think it'll be a pivotal year like 
like the Great Depression, stock market crash, World War II, all of that. I think we'll be talking about this for a long time. Everything will be before and after 2020. And there's a lot that we can't control about it. But, you know, we need to remember there's a lot we can control about our own actions and response, especially in a heightened political season and heightened tensions with so many issues in our country right now. I know we've thought a lot about, heard a lot about the contagious coronavirus, but there's a worse contagious virus right now that's spreading everywhere that's much more dangerous and will have a much longer impact on all of us. And that's the, that's the sort of contagion of anger and contempt that's spreading. One bit of anger triggers another and another and another. It's like wildfire. We live in an age of outrage. And can we just remind ourselves for a moment that, you know, anger is a symptom of something else. I mean, it's very real when it's in your face. It can kind of make you trigger and react back, but it's really just a symptom. It's like a smoke alarm, you know? You can get angry at the smoke alarm and yank the battery out, or you can think, maybe, is there a fire somewhere? And, you know, anger, that's why they call it a secondary emotion. It's pointing to the fact that there's some primary emotions like hurt or fear or frustration that's going on. When someone gets angry in your face, God's people are the kind of people who are smart enough to be gentle and realize that behind that anger, there's some hurt or some fear or some frustration that's going on. So that makes sense why we're all so angry because of the year that 2020 has been, doesn't it? Because there's a lot of people who are hurting and afraid and frustrated by so many things. We all are. Here's the problem. All that anger, that smoke alarm's going off, but it's, it's not just staying anger. Anger is converting itself right before our eyes into hate. Hate. And that should scare us. Listen to the language that's being used as we talk on the news and in social media and even around the water cooler. I'm telling you, it, it, it's, it's, it should scare us, especially when I see it creeping up in me. When I start going along in this very powerful path where anger turns to hate. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said years ago, the, divine, the line dividing good and evil isn't sort of like you and me figuring out you know, who the good guys and the bad guys are. That's what everybody wants you to think. But he reminded us that it cuts through the heart of every human being. And so we humbly come to that recognition because it seems like we've forgotten that. And that's why the change we're seeing is how deeply people seem to hate each other today. And a lot of people seem to be okay with that. In the midst of an election, pandemic, racial protests, all this galvanizing hatred. Followers of Jesus are too often sucked in and sometimes even fueling it. And we have to ask, when did it become okay to hate? There's something really, really basic, foundational, that Jesus wants anyone who says they want to follow him to understand. We're going to remind ourselves of that today because Jesus says, I want you to be known by something. What he didn't say was, hey, guys, gather around. I got a bunch of fish bumper stickers here. You can, put them, you can put them on your chariot, and then everyone will know you're one of my disciples. 
No. Nor did he say, oh, guys, I've got a bag here of a WWJD bracelets. John, Peter, Andrew, put those on, and then everyone will know, clearly, you're one of my guys. No, that's not what Jesus did. Nor did he say, hey, I hope what happens is that you fight and argue and bicker about theology and, and, and my words and, and the Bible I'll leave in your hands and you would create hundreds and hundreds of denominations and, and being all divided up and arguing with each other, that's how they'll know you're my disciple. Jesus didn't, didn't say that. Nor did he say, you know, you're gonna, everyone's going to know you're my disciples if you act just a little bit morally superior and a little judgmental, and, and get, get really good at giving a sigh of disgust, like, ugh, when someone does something that disgusts you, or if, if someone says something politically you disagree with, get really good at that sigh of disgust, ugh, and, and let contempt well up in your heart, because that's how they'll know you're my followers. Friends, Jesus didn't teach any of that. He didn't say you'll know, they'll know you're my disciples by your potluck dinners, or your, or your um, you know, your, your bingo, your, your buildings, your, your, your famous church signs or, or preachers or your political viewpoints. This is exactly what Jesus said. John chapter 13, 35, he says this. By this, by this one thing, everyone will know you are my disciples. If you, what? If you love one another. Love one another. If you would be so strange and different like I am, Jesus said, that you would show some unselfish, unconditional love in action toward people, says, that is the distinguishing mark. It'll set you apart. It's what the world really needs. He doesn't say, you know, if you're a follower of mine, it'd be nice if you loved a little more once in a while. That's not what he's saying. He's saying... The way anyone can verify whether you, in fact, are one of my followers. If you are a follower, the sign will be that you love. It's our evidence. Without it, how would anybody know? You can have all the bumper stickers and bracelets you want. But as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 13, without love, you're nothing. And certainly not a follower of Jesus. Take a look at some of the words he says in John 13, 34 and 40, 35. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you're my disciples. Isn't it interesting that he says um, it's a new commandment? I mean, they had like... I don't know, 600-some commandments. They didn't, did they need a new one, really? I mean, they had rules about rules. And they worked hard to keep track of them and be faithful to God. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you a new one that trumps them all. If you don't remember any other command, remember this one. Here's what he just says. He just says to us, love each other. Love each other. That's what Jesus tells you to do. It's sort of step one. It's not like, some of you are loving, and you'll be good at that. Why don't you love, and the rest of you just continue being who you are? No, he says, if you want to be my follower, love each other. In an age of outrage, love each other. In a time of political animosity, in a time of racial, you know, woundedness and frustration, in a time when everyone is sick and tired of being distanced and isolated, will you just love each other? 
Will you stop devouring and attacking and mauling and hating just like everybody else? And instead, would you love each other? It's what the world desperately needs and wants and is craving for. Jesus says, I'm not asking you. I'm giving you a command here. So stop calling yourself a Christian if you're not willing to do what I say, he says. I'm telling you right now, this is a command, and I want you to work on it until you get it. You ready? Here it is. Lean in. Love one another. And then he says, love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I. That's how we're to love. It, it describes the manner in which we are to love one another. That phrase, just as I loved you, homoios, in, in Greek, it, it means look at the way Jesus loved and then you love in the same way. Well, how did he love people? Well, unselfishly, unconditionally, and he put it in action. That's how. He loved people who didn't deserve it. He loved people who were unlovely. He, he, he loved his followers and his friends. He loved his enemies. He loved without limits and beyond labels. He loved in ways that crashed barriers. He loved even to the point of sacrifice. And, in, and then he says, you love the same way. It's why Jesus can say radical things like Matthew 5, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Are we doing that? Titus 3, 3 says, you know, at one time, before you were a follower of Christ, you were foolish, hating one another. It's foolish. But... Now, as 1 John 2, 9 says, anyone who claims to be in the light but, but continues to hate his brother or sister, you're not in the light at all. No matter what you claim, you're walking in the darkness. 1 John 4, 20, whoever claims to love God yet hate his brother is a liar. And then Jesus ends that passage by saying, when you love like that, that's how the world will know that you belong to me. That's the mark. It proves you're my disciple. What are we known for? What are you known for? It's interesting, over in Romans 12, the Apostle Paul wants to give us some real practical help about this. And here's one thing he says. He says, um, when we're kind of around difficult people who are so, just drive us crazy and, and make it impossible to, to love, it's a great challenge to myself. I hope to you. He simply says in verse 9, he says, love them anyway. And he uses this phrase, love must be sincere. Isn't that interesting? Love must be sincere. You know, the word sincere, many have said that word uh, comes from an old Latin phrase that means without wax. Without wax. In the first century, sometimes pottery was made in such a way that when you put it in the kiln, it was so thin it would crack. And uh, if you were an honorable craftsman, you would just destroy it and start over. But some shady, you know, pottery salespeople, they would, they would take those cracked pots and they would fill the crack with wax and then paint over the whole thing and sell it at full price. Of course, you get home, put a hot liquid in it and everything leaks out or it falls apart on the way home. So if you're an honest dealer, you would only have the real deal in your shop. And if you did, you'd put a stamp on it that would say, Sincere, without wax. This is the real thing. And the Lord is saying, love must be sincere like that, without cracks. When your love gets lifted up and the light of God shows through it, does it show a lot of cracks that you tried to cover over by pretending, but really everyone can see through it? Or in a moment of, exposure and the brilliance of God's light, it all shines through as phony. 
Paul is saying, love must be sincere. Love everyone, in other words. Love the people that Jesus died for without hypocrisy. Love that's sincere can, can reach across and love people on the other side of the political aisle. People you disagree with without demonizing them, without saying, I can't stand those people. Whether they're Democrat or Republican, we've got to learn to disagree politically while still loving unconditionally. You can disagree politically and still love in a way that's sincere. One way to show how sincere your love is, is to just get super practical here, is to think about how we talk with each other on social media. I mean, social media is a hot mess right now. One of the problems with social media that we all need to be smart about is, is, is algorithms, okay? When, when you click on a news article on Facebook, Facebook takes note of that, and the algorithms go into high gear, and they, they're going to make sure they feed you more stories just like that one with the same point of view. And the more you read those stories, and exclusively those stories, the narrower your world gets, and in some ways, the smaller your brain gets. You just keep reading stuff that's designed to reinforce what you already believe when you get narrower and narrower, and it becomes easier and easier to sort of never actually interact with a human being who thinks anything differently than I think, and so we find it very easy to demonize them. And the algorithms just keep telling us how stupid and wrong they are. These caricatures, these straw people are set up and then knocked down. And then contempt rises up, and then anger, and anger turns to hate. And we're a bunch of suckers when that happens. Remember on social media, you know, a lot of people are more aggressive online behind a keyboard or with their thumbs than they are in person. They say and do things they probably never say face to face. So just be careful and cautious. I've been guilty of that many times. Probably never see that person, so Got to be careful, got to be loving, especially during quarantine when we're all kind of, you know, distant. Uh, it's easy to be more desensitized to people. We've just got to be careful. Listen, if, if you're mocking or attacking others on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram over politics, the Holy Spirit is grieved by that. Your love is meant to be sincere all the way through. It's one of the it's one thing to discuss ideas and debate things, but when it crosses over into attacking people, that's not cool. Not for Christ followers who are supposed to be known by our love. So maybe you need to unfriend a few people just to separate, and that's okay. Unfollow or just spend less time on it, but whatever we need to do, love must be sincere, unconditional. And then we got to find a way to put it into action, and I, I encourage you to find a way to do that beyond words. You know, Early church historian Rodney Stark, he's a sociologist. He, he's written about uh, his studies to reveal how in early centuries the church grew by leaps and bounds. For decade upon decade, from this small little ragtag bunch of nobodies that followed this kind of itinerant preacher named Jesus to this sort of swelling snowball of a movement that just kept growing and growing, and, and, and it doubled, and then it tripled, and then it quadrupled all across the known world, across you know ranks of society from the poorest all the way up to the emperor himself. And when historians have asked, like, how did that happen? The answer is actually pretty simple. They outloved everybody. That's what we did. As Christian people, they just said, we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to love. So 
in a time when people were killing and hating, just like in our day, they, they showed unusual acts of kindness to people. When the plagues hit, and some serious plagues hit that are much more serious than the ones we're facing now, everyone was scared and hiding behind closed doors, but the Christians, they, they, they were different. They had this love that had come to them, and they didn't let a plague stop them from letting it flow through them. And so they, they loved people, and they cared for the sick, and they were this calming presence, and they didn't they were, you know, unconditional in who they loved. And they even sacrificed themselves sometimes for that kind of ministry. They'd scoop up dying children off the streets that others had cast aside, take them into their own homes. I mean, that's a radical expression of love. They refused to go the way the world went. And the watching world turned their head and said, what is with these people? That's attractive. What is it about them? Love is like that. It leaves people to say, I want what they've got. Maybe this Jesus they represent is credible after all. And that has never been more true than it is in our day. If we want to make Jesus credible, we've got to love better. We've got to love better. Love that is sincere will always have that impact, especially in our fragmented world. Jesus commanded that we show love because it's the thing that the world will look at and then be drawn to him. So I'm so proud of this church and the way that y'all have loved unconditionally and so strongly during the pandemic, reaching out to healthcare workers and teachers and kids and you know, matching the cases of coronavirus one for one in Maryland with over 70,000 acts of love in Jesus' name. Friends, that's not an activity or a program for a pandemic. That's who we are. It's what Jesus commands. We've got to keep it up. And the world needs it now more than ever. So how are you going to love? Who are you going to love? Who are you going to be unselfish and unconditional with a love and action toward? What's the God, the Spirit of God saying to you? about what needs to happen, not just to you, but through you. Here's, here's the thing. I know this. In about 50 days, this whole election thing is going to be over. And, and all that stuff that anybody said in the heat of the moment, all those angry Facebook posts, that's going to be past us. So we've got to be sure, just to get practical here, is that we don't say or do stuff now that's going to sacrifice our spiritual influence later. How tragic if after the election, that guy from work who has a problem or your neighbor who has a need or that family member who, who has a question won't approach you. They won't invite you into their situation to show them love or care or to share Jesus at all because, because you lost your influence because of the way that you led with your politics or the way that you handled the fire of political conflagration right now. If we let ourselves primarily be known, instead of as a follower of Jesus who loves, but a, a political person with this perspective, we're going to alienate a lot of people, and we're going to be known for the wrong thing. Listen, here's my prediction about the election, okay? Ask the Spirit of God how to guide your vote, but I know this. On November 3, your candidate is either going to win or lose, <laughs> okay? I think I'm right about that, but here's what else I know. The church... Jesus' church wins or loses based on how we treat other people between now and the election. 
2020 has thrown us a lot that we can't control, but the one thing we can control is whether we obey the command of Jesus to love each other, love each other, love each other. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot of big issues we got to get down to, I realize. But no matter who's elected on November 3, I know this, on November 4, Jesus is still king. I know that. And he's, not, he's looking for subjects, not, not just people who will vote for him, but who will surrender to him and say, I want to follow you, and I will, I will put love over my politics, and I will love sincerely in the way that Jesus did. Can I just leave you with one last tough assignment from the teaching of Jesus? When he says love each other, he makes it clear that, you know, a lot of people today kind of say, we've got to learn to tolerate each other. We've got to learn to get along a little bit and just kind of, Jesus doesn't really teach that. What he says is, that's not enough to tolerate each other. He says, we've got to learn to love even our enemies, even our political enemies. Your faith isn't going to be proven by how deeply you love your friends. Your faith in Jesus Christ will be proven by how deeply you love your enemies, the people you really disagree with politically, the ones you can love unconditionally anyway. Tolerance is too low a standard. As Bob Goff would say, love everyone all the time and start with those who creep you out, those on the other side of the aisle. So that's the call from Jesus. More than tolerate our enemies, how could we love them? Ask God to take away political contempt from your heart. Sometimes when it's just so hard to say, God, it's so hard. I'm so angry. I'm so frustrated. God, just help me at least fake it today. And then God will lead you to a sincere love. So have you hung out with any enemies lately? Anyone from the other side of the aisle in your world that you love and can care for, not just to agree with or disagree with or debate or whatever with, but to love them and to understand them and to practice Christianity them. <laughs> Here's my challenge. Show love to someone who's your opponent. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's an opponent at work or a, an opponent in politics or an opponent of another race or even another religion. That next door neighbor that you've got a feud with, I don't know. Maybe it's an opponent in your family. Maybe in your neighborhood or on social media. What could you do this week even today, to show love to someone who's your opponent. This is the call of Jesus because we're asked to be known for our love, not our hate, to overcome evil with good. Who's that, who's that enemy that Jesus is calling you to love? You can disagree politically, but let's be known for loving unconditionally with agape, charity, unselfish, unconditional love in action. Let's pray together. God, we, we ask for your help today to, to be known, not for hatred, but for love, to love like you did. Lord, help us to put our own name in that passage that says love is patient, love is kind. Lord, put our own name there and help it to be so, so we could say Ben is patient. Emily is kind, that we are not jealous or boastful or proud or rude, that we don't demand our own way, we're not irritable or easily offended, that we would keep no record of wrongs, but we would rejoice 
not in what's unjust, but in the truth, and that we would never give up. God, make it so of us, we pray in the name of Jesus, who loves us so perfectly. Amen.